Well, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm sure you all came ready for another great discussion in everybody's favorite new book of the Bible, Hebrews. And so uh, that is exactly where we're going to jump in today. Uh, But I do want to stop and ask you a question first. And I want you to think about this question. What is the goal of your life? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to do some reflecting, because I don't want this to be an idealistic thing. I want us to actually think about how we're living. And so if you would look at the way you spend your time, the way you spend your finances, the way you invest in relationships, what is the goal of your life? You know, I think we all have this goal we say we want to live for. We want to do this. We want to be this. But how does the way we actually live show that? In 2005, researcher and sociologist Christian Smith and his team did a study of American teenagers. And if you're thinking, why are we talking about a study of American teenagers from 2005? If you were a teenager in 2005, you are somewhere between the age of 30 and 36 today. So anybody in the room want to raise their hand and be honest about it being in that age range? All right, we got one in the floor. I got a couple around. Yeah, right? I promise I'm not going to pick on you. Chase is like, stop picking on me. I'm like, I'm not picking on you. That's just the age the study did. But the, 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 the results of this study were shocking. And they actually showed a new belief system forming in the lives of these teenagers that Christian Smith and his research team coined moralistic therapeutic deism, right? So we're just going to get into the the small words first today. And in this, uh, this concept, otherwise known as MTD, has been fascinating to me over the last five or six years as I've discovered it, studied it, thought about it, and looked at the way it's affecting the church today. So let me give you the five kind of key points of this faith. So moralistic therapeutic deism believes a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, right? So there is a God. It's the basic idea. This is the basic concept of deism. Deism has existed for centuries. Lots of people believed it. Thomas Jefferson is probably one of the most famous that we would know who was a deist. And many of the other founding fathers were deists as well. The second core of this moralistic therapeutic deism is God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Point three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. See how we're beginning just very subtly to shift away from the Christian faith. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And point five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now what this study showed is this is the fastest growing faith system among people in 2005 and I think it has only sped up since then. Moralistic therapeutic deism presents a unique understanding of God. And Smith goes on and he says, this amorphous faith is about a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly involved in one's affairs. 
especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved in, most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. This is what Smith and his team call moralistic therapeutic deism. The other key thing that I don't want us to miss in this, in this study that he did, the only conversation that these teenagers, that the majority of these, conver- the majority of these teenagers talked about having about God was in this interview. And so I think it forces us to ask ourselves some tough questions. Many of you right now are like, I thought we were talking about Hebrews. There's some others in the crowd who are like, well, I'm a little uncomfortable all of a sudden because I kind of agree with those five statements of faith. Where is he going next? And then there's some parents right now who are mentally scrolling through the last week and trying to think, did I have a conversation with my kid about faith at all? And parents, I'm one of you, and I want to make that question just a little bit harder for us. I think if our conversations about faith were simply about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do, I'm going to say that conversation doesn't count. Parents, when was the last time we, I'm one of you, sat down and talked to our kids about who Jesus is? about what he did for us and for our kids and about how we should live as followers of his. You see, I think this is exactly why we need to be studying the book of Hebrews. Because if Jesus truly is the greatest hero, the greatest priest, the greatest savior, the greatest mediator, and the greatest rest of all time, then our faith is so much more and so much deeper than MTD. Or the phrase that sits at the heart of moralistic therapeutic deism, do good, try not to get caught doing bad. And I believe that's exactly the point that Hebrews chapters 8 through 10 make. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to kind of race through these three chapters. If this is your first time here, you can download a Bible app on the app store on your phone. We recommend version, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And as we kind of get through these three chapters, and yes, we're going to go through all three of them, so buckle up, hold on. I know it's like you're all a little groggy this morning because we're still tired. We lost an hour of sleep, but we're going to move through these three chapters, and we're going to see Jesus this week as the greatest sacrifice of all time. And we're going to unpack this phrase. The cross provides us with irrational grace. The cross provides us with irrational grace. So if you're there, take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. I'm just going to camp out on that one for a minute. It's a great review of where we've been. We started in chapter 5. You'll remember two weeks ago, kind of walking through this idea that Jesus is our high priest. 
But he's a high priest who's better than the high priest of the Old Testament. He's different in that Jesus is able to sit down. And in a, in the, to the Hebrew people, that would be, he's ready to stop. He's, his work is complete. So what was the work of the high priest that Jesus has finished? It's the work of maintaining this relationship between us and God. It's the work of maintaining the covenant that God set up with his people and said, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament or if you're not, that covenant looked a little bit like this. Build a tabernacle. That's just a tent. It's like a tent church. Or later on in the Old Testament, a temple. So build that. Come here to worship. Offer your sacrifices. Obey my commands. If you don't obey my commands, tell the priest, and then the priest will make the appropriate sacrifice for you, your sins will be forgiven, and then that's the cycle that goes wash, rinse, repeat all the way through the Old Testament. Obey my commands. If you don't, tell the priest, he'll make a sacrifice. It doesn't take much imagination to imagine if you've got a lot of people going through this process that God has called, this would be exhausting for them and exhausting for the priest. And unfortunately, I don't think it sounds a whole lot different than MTD. Do good. If you don't, say you're sorry and God will bless you and make everything work out the way you want it to. Except if you've read the Old Testament, that's not really the way it worked for the Israelite people. So God decided to establish a new covenant through Jesus, this better priest. And according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus' work is complete. Jump to the end of chapter 8 with me. Or pick up reading in verse 8. But when God found fault with the people... He said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. Says the Lord, I will put my law in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They do not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. What I think the author of Hebrews is teaching us is the fault with the old covenant was not with God. It was with the faithlessness, forgetfulness, and the continual heart issues that the Israelites had with the God who called them out of slavery. These Israelites were not able to remain faithful to God's commands. They weren't able to obey what he'd asked them to do. They didn't listen to Moses. A couple of weeks ago, we saw they weren't even able to enter the promised land that God had set aside for them because they couldn't listen to what God had said. But it didn't stop with that first group coming out of Egypt. All of the Old Testament is this cycle. Sin, sacrifice, forgiveness. Sin, sacrifice, forgiveness. God sees, but he's not surprised that this is not working. It's not what he 
created his people to be. And so he sends Jesus to establish not only a new priesthood, but a new way of being in relationship with God. And Jesus' presence makes the old covenant worthless and obsolete. These Hebrews are no longer under the law, but they're free to live in grace. The author continues to show us how this Old Testament sacrificial system didn't work. It was a system that was limited by place. The only way you could be in direct contact with God was to go to the temple or the tabernacle. It was limited by who could be involved. Only the priest could go in and out. All the normal people like you and I, we stayed on the outside while the priest went in and out. And it was limited in its effectiveness. Hebrews 9.9 9 says, this is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciousness of the people who bring them. These sacrifices aren't able to cleanse the inside. But this isn't really hard for us to imagine, right? I mean, the blood of the animal sacrifice couldn't pay for sins. They couldn't cleanse our bodies. They couldn't change our hearts. I mean, think about coming to church. You guys show up. One of the pastors greets you in the parking lot. Says, hey, thanks so much for coming today. I'll take your tithe. And they take your money and they walk inside and they tell you to stay in the parking lot. You just stay out here, okay? So I'm gonna come in the church. We're gonna worship. Won't be anybody here except the pastors and CJ playing guitar. It'll be great. And then in an hour, we come back out and we go, hey, thanks so much. Your sins are forgiven. You can go home. Will that make any impact on your day? But that's the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. They literally brought their sacrifice to the temple and stood outside while the priest went in and did all the work. There'd be a huge disconnect in that experience. And so the Israelites were constantly stuck in this cycle of do good, try not to do bad, a cycle they couldn't break free of. It was a cycle that was exhausting. And so God creates this new covenant that is completely irrational. It doesn't make any logical sense. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He's entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. God knew that this Old Testament covenant and sacrifice were not going to be effective so he sent Jesus to do what only he could do. Jesus became our high priest to establish a new covenant to cleanse us from our sins. Yet he didn't ask us to bring an offering. He put his own body on the cross. He shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven because Hebrews says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this time, Instead of a bull or a goat or a dove, it was the Son of God who shed his blood to pay for my sin and your sins. The cross provides us with irrational grace. 
Is there anything less logical in all of human history than for God to step out of heaven, live his life like one of us, be convicted to die by the people he created, to suffer public humiliation and embarrassment as he dies on a cross? God dies. Don't let that point just, oh yeah, I've heard the cross thing before. I get it. It goes right over my head. No, God, the creator of the universe, hung on a cross and died at the hands of the finite, broken people he created and who he came to save. But it's exactly how it happened. It doesn't make logical sense. It's irrational in the act, but it needed to happen, but it only had to happen once. You see, the Old Testament priests never stopped sacrificing animals. They never stopped. Jesus laid down his life once so that you and I and everyone who would ever believe our sins, past, present, and future, could be forgiven Our hearts are made new, not by obedience to the law, but by grace we didn't earn, grace we don't deserve, grace that sets us free. That's the good news of the gospel, is that I'm given grace I didn't earn. Listen to Hebrews 9.15. That's why he's the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God promised them, for Christ died to set them free from the penalties of sin that they have committed under the first covenant. Jesus mediates the covenant, not a priest, God himself. So we have an eternal inheritance, something guaranteed for all time. And we're free. Listen to the other promises in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all time, Hebrews 10.10. I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds, Hebrews 10.17. God's forgotten your sin. You're wiped clean. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sin but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting him. Hebrews 9, 28. Paul makes this point so clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone and new life has begun. New life has begun. The irrational grace that Jesus showed us on the cross gives us so much more than try to do good, try not to do bad. We're free. We're forgiven. God has forgotten our sins. We have a future. We have a new identity in Jesus' life and death. We have purpose to our life because of Jesus' life and death. We're new creations because of this once-for-all-time sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. This is the justice of God. God made right what was wrong. And in that, he executed his justice perfectly. God looked at our lives and he said, the way they behave, the way they act, the things they do are not right. And this way that 
we've created for them to be made right isn't working. And so God stepped out in his love and his grace and he did far more for us than we could ever have imagined. He broke that cycle of do good, try not to do bad. So how do we live? If that's true, if that's the truth of Hebrews 8, 9 and the first part of 10, how do we live in response to that? Well, I am so glad you ask. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, now first thing we need to do here, this is an opportunity to learn some Bible study basics. So I don't know how often you read the Bible yourself, but when you do, anytime you hear, you see the word therefore, in a passage, you should stop and ask yourself the question, anybody know? What's it there for, right? Like, it's not super, I don't, I don't have a lot of really smart things to teach you, right? So when we see that word, we go, okay, what's this there for? The author of the book or who, whatever passage of scripture you're reading will be looking back at something. In this case, he's saying, From Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 10, I've been telling you Jesus is a great high priest. That means he established a new covenant. He established a new sacrifice. The law is obsolete. And therefore, this is how you should live. In light of all God's done for you, this is how we should respond. And the first thing he says is, we should draw near. We should draw near to God. Now, I know in our lived experiences, oftentimes God feels really far away. But the truth is, God is never far away. Paul actually teaches that to a a group of unbelievers in Athens when he's walking through that town on one of his missionary journeys. And he says to them, his purpose, this is Paul speaking, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And God wanted us to know just how near he was. And so he sent his son to walk among us, to be one of us, to live a life that we live, to be tempted in the way that we're tempted, to struggle in the ways that we're struggled, we struggle, but to never sin. And he says it's through the blood of Christ that we know God is near, and it's through baptism in Hebrews that he says we know God is near. The baptisms we celebrated two weeks ago and we'll celebrate more in April are a symbol and a marker on the trail of faith that reminds us that God is near, God is working 
in our lives and in the lives of those around us, each person who's taken down into that water and comes back up symbolizes our death to our old way of thinking, our old life. And we're raised out of that to a new life with Jesus. God's working on our behalf. He's asking us to draw near to him in conversation. God says, if you need me, I'm right here. Talk to me anytime you want. The fancy church word for that is prayer. It's just having a conversation with a God who loves you, who knows what's going on in your life, who's watching and wants you to know you can talk to him anytime you want. And God says, I drew near to you by giving you my word. So you can read it, you can hear my heart, you can know who I am. And so as we draw near, God's given us these things to remember that he's not far away from us. Second thing he says to do is you have to hold fast to your hope. We must cling to the confession, to our confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and our hope for righteousness. It's actually what faith is. The Hebrew word for faith, I'm sorry, the Greek word for faith, we're in the New Testament, the Greek word for faith is pistis. It's real easy, you just think about getting angry and you know the Greek word for faith, right? But if you transition that to a verb, to the daily act of believing, the word becomes pistuo. Say that with me, pistuo. Okay, you're all still awake, great. I'm glad you guys are still hanging on. Faith in action is what we're really going to unpack next week. But this idea of pistuo, this idea of a daily reliance on a daily trusting in, a daily clinging to Jesus as my hope, as the one who's going to get me through the day. If we go back to that beginning in moralistic therapeutic deism, if it's about a God who's distant and uninvolved and whose involvement isn't wanted Pistuo, or believing, is the exact opposite of that. It's how we combat that. We daily invite Jesus in. We allow him to influence our decisions and our actions, and we rely on him in both the good times and the bad times. We cut the heart out of MTD when we actively trust that Jesus' sacrifice on a cross was enough to forgive me of my sins. And we live lives of gratitude back to God for what he's done for us. If you want to know more about that, come back next week for Hebrews chapter 11. The third thing the author of Hebrews says, if you're going to live this way, if you're going to live in relationship, draw near, you cling to, and you've got to come together. We have to do this as a community. Nobody lives the Christian life by themselves. There are no Lone Ranger or John Wayne Christians. We need each other. And I think we see this most clearly in the lives of high school students. Many of you know I spent my first 18, 19 years of ministry working with middle school and high school students. And I can't tell you how many leaders in high school ministry Kids who were fully engaged, fully active at every program we went to, always there, never missed, on a stage, go to college, and never come back. I don't think a single one of those kids graduated high school and thought, you know, I think I'm just going to walk away from the church. 
But what happens is they've got this group of friends that they do everything with. They're on every retreat. They're on every mission trip. They're at every camp. They're there every week. And all of a sudden, and then they've got this support network behind them of their parents who are like, hey, I think this would be a good thing if you'd go do. And they'll never admit that, but they appreciate that. But then all of a sudden, they go off to college, and that group went to five different colleges. And even if they're at the same school, they're not in the same dorm, they're not interacting in the same way. And if they're not intentional about plugging into a group of believers, about finding that community, it's not the freshman philosophy class that leads them away from Jesus. It's the fact that they don't have anybody to support them. And so church, that means it's on you and me. It's why you're going to get tired of hearing me talk about every kid needs five adults in their life outside of their parents. Because what if as that kid started to sway or started to say, hey, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to that college Bible study group. Somebody from the church texted them. Said, hey, just wanted you to know I was praying for you today. Hope everything's going well. How you doing? That community can go with them. It looks different, but we bridge the gap until they find that community where they can really dig in and settle in. We need that encouragement. And adults, if you think we're any different, you miss the point of the story. We need that. We need each other. We need people who are praying for us. We need people who are like, hey, you know what? I'll walk beside you. I'll bear that burden. That's why we need life groups. We were created for community. The last thing the author of Hebrews says is, you should live in response to God's offer, to Jesus' the greatest sacrifice, by doing this, by heeding the warning. Look at Hebrews 10, 26. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He is also the Lord. He, is, he also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You didn't think you were going to get out of here without feeling a little uncomfortable today, did you? Right? I mean, it's Hebrews. There's these passages that are like, oh, that's a gut punch. What's he saying? Well, when it comes to passages of scripture like this, I am eternally grateful for great biblical scholars who do tons of work and help us understand this process. And so this morning, I'm relying a lot on a guy who you might not know his name, but his name's Tim Mackey. Maybe you're familiar with the Bible Project. He unpacks a lot of these truths in ways that we can understand. But before I get there, I do want to remind you, Dan said last week, you should be Bereans. You should go do your own study. So you go wrestle through this passage yourself. I've done a lot of wrestling with it this week. When I read it two weeks ago, I went, 
<laughs> oh, why didn't I make Chase preach on this? <laughs> so what's he mean? I need you to stick with me for just a couple more minutes. What's he saying here? So we know this. The pattern of the book of Hebrews has been, if there's a tough teaching, it re- it re- it's, it's based on something from the Old Testament, right? He's always going back to the Old Testament. And he's using these passages that they knew really well that we don't know really well. But in the Old Testament, there are three large buckets or large categories of sin, okay? And there are sacrifices that could be offered for two of those three large categories. The first one is deliberate sin, So if you go and you just say, you know what? I know that I am supposed to love my neighbor, but I don't want to, right? Deliberately sin. Choose to do it. This is the sin, I think, if we're honest, most of us do this, right? We don't like stumble into sin most of the time. We we willingly choose to disobey what God asks us to do, right? And that's what it seems like he's talking about here in Hebrews, but it's not. But if you read Leviticus 6, you can see that when the Israelites deliberately sinned, God had a plan for them to be restored. You can go home and read that this afternoon, or based on what we heard in Hebrews 9, you don't have to because it's useless. The new covenants come because of Jesus, right? But it was there. The second type of sin is found in Numbers chapter 15. And in the first half of Numbers chapter 15, God sets aside a way to be forgiven of unintentional sin, right? Like, oops, I accidentally did that. Now, for the Israelites of that time, there were 613 laws they had to obey. You could imagine maybe forgetting one every once in a while, right? And being like, oh, oh, that's right. Oh, I did. Uh, uh Uh-oh, what do I do now? There's a plan. God made a plan so that you could be forgiven of that type of sin. But this third sin comes at the end of Numbers 15. And I want to read it to you. It's Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity shall be on him. So in this third type, it's like shaking your fist at God and just being like, no, I won't ever do this. That third type, God says, there's no real like, way to, to help you here. If we were to think about it in medical terms, it'd be like going to your general practice doctor and receiving a diagnosis that you have a disease that is going to kill you. And he says, you need to go see the specialist. There's nothing else I can do for you. You're going to die from this illness. And you walk into the specialist's office. And the specialist says, there is one way. There is one way that you don't die from this illness. Take this pill. And you look at the specialist, you go, nope. Don't believe you. I don't want the pill. And you take that pill and you throw it in the trash can. What else can be done? God is not going to take this irrational grace that he's given us on the cross. 
He's not going to take the sacrifice of Jesus and say, you know what? I don't care if you want it or not. You have to take it. He hands us the cure. He hands us the cure for our problem. And he says, if you want that, it's there. For the times you've deliberately done what I don't want you to do, for the times you've accidentally done what I don't want you to do, the cure is there. But we have to choose to take it. Now, when we come to passages like this, though, people who are solid believers, who are, should be confident in their faith, get nervous, right? We all go, well, am I, am I in the third category? Could I be there and not know it? Let me be clear. If you are sitting here today and worried that you might be in the third camp, you're not in the third camp. Because if you were in the third camp, you wouldn't be worried. You'd be celebrating. You'd be like, I, Jesus' stuff is garbage. You probably wouldn't even be here. But if you're worried about it, that's a sign that you've probably got some deliberate sin you need to let Jesus take care of in your life. But that third camp, that camp that the author of Hebrews is talking about is an outright rejection. And church, what we have to understand is God's wrath is real. However, it's always based on his love. Tim says, love and goodness intervene in situations of evil and injustice and make them right. The truth behind God's wrath is that those who actively reject Jesus' sacrifice and offer of healing, there is no hope. God says, you can turn around. You can change your mind on that anytime you want. Come back and accept it. It's available. But if you reject that, that's your one chance. A day's coming. And as we wait for God's justice to come, we draw near to the God who loved us. We cling and hold fast to the hope that we have. And we join together encouraging one another, doing everything we can to spread that message. But that day that's coming will look different for those who have refused God's love and God's irrational grace. The cross provides us with irrational grace. And this irrational grace is what gives us purpose. And it's what's so much better than moralistic therapeutic deism. Think about it this way. Point one of MTD. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over all human life on earth. Or Jesus stepped into our world and met us where we are. Point two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other and as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Or the faith of Hebrews, God knows we can't be good, nice, and fair to each other. So he sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Or the central goal is to follow Jesus and to invite others along in this journey so that they too can know the love God has for them. 
Point four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Or we daily get to rely on, trust in, and cling to the God who loves us and sent his son to die on a cross for us. Good people go to heaven when they die. Or those who accept God's irrational grace get to experience new life today and for all of eternity. Not because of who they are. Not because they were good. But because God is gracious. God in his love provides us with a life of hope. Through the one time, once for all sacrifice of his son, it's why Jesus is the greatest of all time sacrifice. And that hope is available to everyone who believes. So if you're here this morning, you're like, I want that. I want hope. I want to stop this hamster wheel of repeat, make a mistake, repeat, try to do good, try to do good don't actually do it. <clears throat> The gospel offers you a different way. And in just a minute, as we close, I'm going to pray a prayer. And there's nothing fancy or magical about the words we're going to pray in that prayer. But if you pray that, it's in asking God and saying, I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe your son has done what you said he would do. And church, in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to remember that once for all time sacrifice that Jesus made that gives us a relationship with the God who loves us, who created us, and who walks with us every day. So will you pray with me? If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus in, I just want you to pray these words with me. You can say them silently in your head. Nobody has to know. Jesus, I'm sorry I've kept you out of my life. I know that I'm broken and I can't fix myself. Jesus, I repent and turn away from my past mistakes. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I believe you are the son of God who died on the cross for my sins and who walked out of the grave on the third day. Jesus, thank you for bearing my sins and for giving me the gift of eternal life. Help me every day to live for you. If you prayed that prayer, don't leave here without talking to somebody. God, we're so thankful that this isn't on us. It's not on us to do good or be good enough. It's on your unending grace that you gave us at that cross. God, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. When we were far from you, you reached out and you pulled us in. God, may we never forget the sacrifice that you made And may our lives show our thankfulness back to you for the gift that we've received, for grace undeserved, 
for grace unearned. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.